our series called Heaven is Coming. And last week we learned about the importance of the resurrection. And today we're going to be talking about what what our resurrection bodies are actually going to be like. And maybe you've had questions like these. Will we eat in heaven? Will I be able to fly in heaven? Anybody wondered about that? Hey, will I have a body? Will I have the body that I always wanted in heaven? Will I be perfectly athletic, super smart, really funny? Now, maybe you've thought this. Will I get annoyed with people in heaven? Because there's some people that eternity is a really long time. Okay, maybe you've never felt that. Hopefully not. Okay, here's the important thing. We need to realize that heaven is not about fulfilling everything that we want. It's about redeeming, purifying, restoring, recreating us so that we can finally fulfill our mandate to administer God's creation in the presence of God and for the glory of God. So in 1944, C.S. Lewis wrote a novel. It's a sci-fi novel called Paralandra in which he imagines what it would be like if God created more human beings on a different planet. Now, of course, it's fiction, right? But in this book, Lewis depicts the creation of, a, of an Adam and Eve figure on a paradise planet that he calls Paralandra. And in this book, he vividly describes the beauty of a creation without sin and without the curse. See, the animals are, are friendly and get along and, and, and the fruit is perfect and every moment of life in this perfect creation brings joy and contentment. And so a man from earth named Ransom is sent to these people on this paradise planet to help them resist the temptation of Satan. Because what Lewis imagines is that these first human beings on a different planet must go through the same temptation that our first parents did Precisely because it is this trial that determines whether humanity will submit to God out of love and therefore thrive under his lordship or whether they will descend into sin and death as they rebel. Okay, so spoiler alert. What I'm going to say next spoils the end of the book. So if you want to read this book, which I would highly recommend, listen for now and then have amnesia later when you're reading it, okay? So these first humans on this pretend planet, they end up resisting the temptation of Satan. And they're enthroned as the, as the uh, uh, benevolent administrators of this planet under God's authority, what Adam and Eve were destined to do. Their calling was fulfilled to be, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule over it. And so when Ransom, this man from earth, witnesses these first humans assume the authority that they were created by God to have, he realizes what was lost in our world. He realizes what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And the good that would have come from their obedience would have been to pave the way to fulfill the calling that God had on humanity. But they chose the path of rebellion. They failed. And so here's the key, okay? At the end of this story... When these first humans on this pretend planet, right, are, are, have conquered uh, the temptation and are, are ascending to their rightful place as rulers over this planet, an angel explains everything to Ransom about what happened. And this is what he says. His words will be on the screen. This is what Lewis writes in this book. 
Today, for the first time, two creatures of the low worlds, two images of God that breathe and breed like the beasts, step up that step of which your parents, talking to Ransom, which your parents fell, and sit in the throne of what they were meant to be. It was never seen before because it did not happen. This is the key. Because it did not happen in your world on earth, a greater thing happened. But not this, not, what, not what's happening on Paralandra. You see, as good as it would have been for Adam and Eve to obey, and this is what Lewis is trying to help us to understand, he helps us to see that because they sinned, a greater thing happened. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, the incarnation of Jesus Christ means that God has not only paid the penalty for sin, but he has affirmed, become a part of, he's dignified, he's redeemed and recreated his material creation. He didn't throw it away. You see, God could have just thrown away the material world that he made. Everything you read through Genesis when he creates the earth, he could have said, okay, you don't want me, I don't want you. See you later. But in the person of Jesus Christ, the created order was redeemed. Now, the implications of, the, of this are massive. And we're going to get into this because we're going to look at two different texts today that help to illuminate what we're talking about. See, one of the things that we're going to talk about is that the doctrine of creation is at stake when we talk about heaven. I want to explain what we mean by that. Because as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Adam again. He talks about the process of creation. You see, God's plan to not throw away the created order, to redeem it and remake it, is incredibly important. And the reason is this, is because Jesus will forever be fully God and fully man. Okay, so here's how I want to tackle this. This is really what we're going to get into here, is two different passages that help us to understand the resurrection body. So we're going to look at two different passages. One is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58, and they tell us why the new body is important. Then Luke 24, verses 36 to 43, give us an illustration of what our new bodies are going to be like. And the center of what we're going to see in these two passages is this. In heaven, you will be more human than you've ever been. In heaven, you will be more human than you've ever been. I want to explain what that means as we go through here. All right, so why is the new body important? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58. Let me set up what, where we're at here in, the, in the, 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 the context, and then we'll read the passage all the way through. Or uh, in two different parts, excuse me. So here, Paul addresses an argument that's going on in the Corinthian church. Now, he's writing a letter to the Christians who are in Corinth, a Greek city, a Greek-Roman city. And the, the, some people in this church were repulsed by the idea that dead people would come back to life. They believed that there was an absolute and utter divide between the physical and material world on one side and the spiritual and immaterial world on the other side. Those two things can't mix. And so they thought of resurrection as disgusting and unspiritual because they thought, how can a, a, a decaying, dead, fleshly body that's material inherit such a perfect and beautiful and spiritual existence? Those two things can't go together. See, this was beneath the dignity of heaven to people in the church in Corinth. So this is the issue that Paul addresses. So let's look at the text. Let's look at God's word for, for today. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 44 is where we'll start, and then we'll pick up the rest in a few minutes. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Okay, let's pause there. Paul uses a powerful metaphor from nature to help us understand what some of the aspects of the resurrection body will be. That some things will be the same and some things will be different. You see, he illustrates this with the concept of a seed. He says, okay, look at your own experience. Now, any of you who've been a, a, a gardener or if you've ever farmed, Paul's capitalizing again on this agricultural illustration. If you look at your own experience from farming or gardening, the planting of a seed is a perfect example of what will happen with the resurrection. When you plant a seed, it has the matter and the genetics of the plant that will grow. The seed's placed in the ground, it literally dies. And it begins to decay as water and soil act on it. But this seed then springs forth with a new sprout. A plant that is still the same plant, the same DNA as that seed, but it's fundamentally different from the seed. You see, friend, friends, Paul wants us to understand that the seeds are not the end goal when you plant or when you farm or when you garden. Seeds are but the blueprint for the plant, the harbinger of a sprout, the precursor of a future of fruitfulness. But the seed and the plant share some important things in common. But they're fundamentally different. And this is what Paul wants us to see with this metaphor. What he's emphasizing here is that life springs out of death. And that the wonder of the transformation of a seed, because I'll tell you what, you put a tiny seed. We did this with our garden this year. If any of you are over at our house this summer, we planted a massive garden in our backyard and bit off a little bit more than we could chew at certain moments. But we planted something like 20 different kinds of plants in little tiny pots in our basement under grow lights in March. And by the end of August, it was three 16-foot beds overflowing with fruit. And the transformation of this tiny seed as it grows into a plant that's fruitful is the illustration that Paul wants us to see about the resurrection body. The, the wonder that we behold of that transformation is that life springs out of death. Now, Let's continue on in the text here. He'll get into more detail. So let's pick it up there in the middle of verse 44. In the NIV, it's a new paragraph here. Paul says, If there is a resurrection, or sorry, if there is a natural body, 
there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, a a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All right, well, this second part of this 1 Corinthians passage, Paul connects the resurrection body to the story of creation. We talked about how the doctrine of creation is at stake here. You see, Paul uses two important adjectives as a contrast. So if you're an underliner kind of person in your Bible, the word natural and the word spiritual are the two words that he sets up as a contrast. Okay, natural means literally the word for soul. It refers to the life breath that any living thing has. It's the animating consciousness of life. See, without it, we would just be a heap of matter, bones and flesh not moving. But this word for soul that Paul uses has a very earthly character to it, has a very earthiness about it. Now, the word spiritual is a word that describes anything that goes above the material world, something from heaven, something that is in the invisible or in the spiritual or immaterial realm. It has a specifically heavenly character. Now, Paul's setting these two things up as a contrast, right? Now, we have to be careful how we understand this because what he doesn't see is that they are so antithetical that they could never be merged together. See, he sets up a contrast for one simple reason. He wants us to see very clearly that an imperfect, sinful, decaying body cannot inherit a perfect, pure, and immortal new heavens and new earth. Those things don't go together. Your decaying, cursed body needs to be remade in order to inhabit a perfect, eternal place. See, Paul isn't trying to drive a wedge between the physical world and the spiritual world. He isn't telling us that everything material is evil. Instead, he's showing us that like the seed, 
Something, something fundamental has to change in our bodies for them to be ready for heaven. Okay, remember that story about this book that C.S. Lewis wrote that I said a few minutes ago? He wrote that a greater thing had happened because of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Well, the fact that Jesus took on human flesh, was crucified, was raised to life, means that our bodies will be raised to be like his. Heavenly, of the spirit, fundamentally greater, better, more suited, perfectly suited to the reality of heaven. Because here's the key, friends. Because Jesus became human, he has made sacred the material world. That does not mean it has sacredness in and of itself. Because anything that is pure and holy comes directly from God. But the fact that Jesus took on human flesh means that forever he will reflect the glory of God as a material person. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Because Jesus' incarnation, his taking on the dust that we inhabit means that we and our life is not hopeless, that we don't have to look at our bodies and our lives in this physical and material place and say, this is all evil and wrong, and God's going to do away with it, and we get to live as spirits in heaven. Instead, what happened is because Jesus took on human flesh, conquering sin and death forever, rising with a recreated, remade, resurrected body, that God's glory will forever be manifest in his creation. So, this is where Paul gets to a point of encouragement. Because he, as we read in this end of this chapter, verses 50 to 58, he tells us about how death is swallowed up in victory. You see, the, the fundamental transformation of our bodies to be renewed and purified and immortal means that sin and death are defeated forever. This answers the question, why is the resurrection body so important? It's precisely because Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection have defeated sin and death. And the final result is that our bodies are going to be made new. Okay, so now that we've gotten a little bit deeper now on the importance of the resurrection body, I want to answer the question, what are our bodies actually going to be like? So let's turn now to Luke chapter 24. Let's turn to Luke 24. This text is uh, right at the end of Luke's gospel after Jesus had appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You see, what we're going to do is as we look at what the resurrection body is going to be like, we need to look at the example of what Jesus' resurrection body is like because that's the example. And so after Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he disappears, they go running back to Jerusalem, and they go tell all the rest of the disciples, hey, we saw Jesus, and they barely finished their sentence. And we pick it up here in verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36 to 43. While they were still talking about this, the fact that they had seen Jesus on the road, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when, they had, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, were, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Let me stop. A few observations of this example. Jesus came and stood among them and spoke. And so that means he literally has a physical body. He's standing there in the flesh, speaking. Okay, they thought he was a ghost. Maybe he looks slightly different. We're not exactly sure if it's because they were afraid or because Jesus in some way looks different, more heavenly than we do. Now, when the disciples doubted, Jesus pointed to the nail holes in his hands and his feet. So there's continuity in his appearance. He still has the scars. He's still himself. He's not someone else. Jesus literally has a material body with the same flesh, bones, blood, organs, molecules, and atoms that we do. But they're different. Friends, let me stop for a moment, actually. Do you realize the significance of the fact that Jesus' resurrection body still has the marks of the nail holes in his hands and his feet. Have you ever thought of that? This means that forever, in heaven, Jesus will bear the marks of the death that he died for you. That when you see him face to face, He will show you the scars and the beating that he took for you. The nails that he endured for you. The crown of thorns that he wore for you. You will be able to touch them and see them. Jesus will forever be enthroned in heaven, bearing the scars of the cross as a monument to his grace and his mercy and his love. That is incredible. Okay, back to our observations. Even though Jesus showed them these marks of the crucifixion, they still didn't believe him. So Jesus asked them to give him some fish to eat, and he ate it. You see, Jesus still eats. He has a body that consumes food. Okay, so here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want us to see about these observations. Jesus' resurrection body is strikingly similar to our, resur- or to our bodies. In other words, heaven is going to feel very similar to our experience in a material and physical world. You will know what it feels like to have flesh and bones and to be standing on a planet that has gravity. But there are some fundamental differences between the resurrection body and our current bodies. So let me use this example of Jesus, and and we'll draw from a few other texts too. But let me use this example of Jesus appearing to his disciples to make a few conclusions about what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. So there's two questions I want to ask here. What are we going to look like? And then what are we going to do in our resurrection bodies? What are we going to look like and what are we going to do? So let's answer the first one. What are we going to look like? One of the first questions you could ask is, how old will we be in heaven? Will we have age? 
Now, this question has been debated over church history, but by about 1100 AD, Christian scholars and church leaders had come up with a pretty good consensus on this question. So for almost a thousand years now, this topic has been mostly settled as uh, that we will in heaven be around the same age as Jesus. Because if Jesus uh, lived on, uh, and born maybe around 4 BC and then was, w- lived about 30 years doing his life as a carpenter and then uh, going to school and all the various things kids do, and then as his public ministry took about three years, we think he might have died around age 33. It's the age I just turned two, two weeks ago. So the resurrection body, we think, is going to be around the same age as Jesus because Jesus has a resurrection body. Why would we be a different age than Jesus would be? So Peter Lombard, who is a theologian in around 1100 AD, wrote this almost a thousand years ago now. He says, A boy who dies immediately after being born will be resurrected in that form which he would have had had He would have had, if he lived to the age of 30 years, hindered by no defect of his body. Now, there is debate about exactly how this is going to work, but the basic idea here is that we will probably all be around that age of 30. Now, let me say this for a moment here. This does not mean that you will have the exact body you had in this life at age 30. Okay, remember, your body in this life is but a seed, so your resurrection body will be transformed and you'll have, uh, and you won't have the physical problems that you have in this life. And so it won't be that you'll have the perfect imagined representative of what you want when you were 30, but it'll have something of that age in your DNA. Okay, let's move on because we can get into the weeds on that one pretty fast. So we might be around age 30 to 33 in heaven. Now, will there be male and female in heaven? This is an interesting question. Jesus still had a male body when he appeared to his disciples. And you know what? When God created the heavens and the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God made human beings male and female, and he calls that very good. So there's no reason to think that that would be a part of evil or the curse, and that we would in some way not have male and female in heaven. Now, what will we look like? What are our physical features be like? Will I be someone greater or better than who I am? Now, all of us have things about our bodies that we don't like. But here's the point. You will be you in heaven. You won't be somebody else. You'll have a new body that looks completely different, but it will look similar in ways, and it won't be this perfect image of what you imagine. You won't be a bodybuilder or something of that sort. But just as Jesus looked like himself, you will look like yourself. Now, we don't know to what extent our scars and blemishes will be present in heaven. Okay, Jesus has scars, but there is some debate on how much will be healed and will we still represent those things. We don't know exactly, but the point is this. You don't need to fear that you will dislike your body in heaven. Okay, another quick question. Will we wear clothes in heaven? Jesus wore clothes when he appeared to his disciples, so we can assume the answer is yes. When you look at Revelation chapter 7 and various other places, it talks about the people in heaven wearing robes, which was the common clothing of first century Roman uh, people. And so there are a a lot of biblical scholars who think that we will wear clothes, but it will probably be representative of the era and the culture and the time that we lived. 
So you might get to spend a day with a person from the first century who's wearing robes. And they would think that your, you know, shorts and flip-flops are weird. (laughs) Okay, let me ask this question now. What are we going to do in heaven? Will we have superhuman abilities? Many of you have probably entertained this, right? Will I be able to fly? That's what everybody wants to know. Let me just give you the short answer. No, you will not be able to fly. And the reason is simple, because you're still a human. If you can't fly as a human now, you will need machines to help you fly in heaven also. You see, we need to expect the experience of life in heaven to be like the experience of being a human. Humans are creatures that God has made. Now, let me just make one quick point here. We have limitations as human beings. And these limitations, such as getting tired, getting hungry, they're not evil because Jesus experienced them. He ate fish with his resurrection body, with his disciples. You see, the reality that God made us with limitations is a reality that God did on purpose. Living within the limitations that he made for you as a creature is a good thing. Pausing because you're hungry is good. Tell you what, eating delicious food is a good thing. Resting, sleeping is a good thing. And we're made to thrive within those limitations that God set for us. So let's ask those questions. Will we eat? Will we sleep? Okay, you'll have a physical body that probably needs nutrients. So I would bet we will eat in heaven. Now, enjoying delicious food is going to be a part of the act of worship in heaven. Because just as Adam and Eve were given all the good plants and fruits to enjoy in the garden, we're going to have the fruits of the earth to enjoy in heaven for the glory of God. Now, will we have to sleep? You see, sleeping is something to be enjoyed. Ask anyone who takes a nap. Anybody nap people? Okay, naps are like a part of heaven and a part of the curse at the same time. Because when you're falling asleep, it's heavenly. And when you wake up and you have a headache afterwards, that's the curse. Okay, sleep is something that we're going to enjoy in heaven, but all of the problems that we have with sleep will be gone. Okay, let me ask another question. Will we work in heaven? Work is a part of the command that God gave us before the fall. This is a study we've done in a couple different locations now, but Genesis 2.15 talks about God's command to Adam and Eve was to work and keep the garden. It's to cultivate and to protect it. And so the the command to work was there before the fall. And so you might even ask this question, if Jesus spent 30 years as a carpenter, was that a waste of time? Jesus knows exactly what it's like to work, to get up in the morning, to grab a cup of coffee, and to go off into his carpenter shop and build a chair. And he did not have power sanders. I think I've talked about this before, but he's sanding these things by hand. You think his arm got tired? Of course it got tired. You see, work is something that is toilsome now, but will be purified and redeemed in heaven. See, Isaiah 65, we looked at a few weeks ago, says that in heaven we will long enjoy the work of our hands. Work will be redeemed. Now, what will it feel like to be in heaven? This is where I want to land the plane here. I think the most important concept we need to grasp here is that our experience of heaven will be true contentment. Being content or satisfied is the most powerful word that I can put to this. 
Why is contentment so important? What does that mean in terms of being, as we said at the beginning, the most human you've ever been? See, we live in a world of discontentment. This world is marked by a lack of satisfaction, a lack of rest. Just think of something as simple as eating a meal. Okay, when we eat food, we're often thinking about the next meal before we even finish the one that we're eating. I do sometimes. We feel guilty about the food that we eat. When we find something delicious, all we can think about is whether we're going to get more of it. When we eat and are never satisfied, we consume things and we really aren't present in the moment and content with what we have. We feel this pressure of scarcity sometimes. Now, in our culture, we experience that the least of any culture across this planet, I think. But there are people who don't have enough to eat. Now, think about even how we think about how discontent we are with our physical appearance. Our culture teaches us some very difficult, wrong things about this. See, the models of health and beauty that commercials and advertisements portray to us are completely unrealistic. There's a, there's a gigantic industry of health food and fitness equipment that makes money off of you feeling discontent with your body. You see, it causes insecurity and depression and self-hatred. And this feeling of discontent, let me just say, and I could give more illustrations, but this feeling of discontentment is not from God. You see, heaven is going to be a place where you are finally content. It's a place where you'll be satisfied precisely because you are finally living full to the glory of God in his presence in a new body that will never perish. So look at these illustrations. Let me just explain what this will look like. When you sit down in heaven to eat, you will be fully present. You will fully enjoy it. And you will never have a thought of what's next or will I ever get to taste this again. With God as your provider, you will never be in want. You'll never be in a hurry. You'll never wish you had something else to eat. And eating will bring joy and contentment and wonder at the incredible creation that God gave us as a gift. And we will do it as an act of worship. When you put your head down to sleep at night, you'll be perfectly at peace in heaven. With God as your protector and with heaven to enjoy, you will sleep without anxiety. Without fear, without the curse of your old body, without the pains or whatever it is, sleep will be glorifying to God. When you work, it won't be toil. You won't fight the presence of sin anymore. You will get tired, because, but, but because you are expending your energy for the glory of God, you will find joy in that expending of your energy. See, the rhythms of work and rest will be the rhythms of worship in heaven. And you know what? When you spend uh, time with a friend in heaven, you'll not be distracted. You won't have to worry whether you'll see each other again. You'll never have to worry about a time crunch. You'll be focused. You'll be engaged. You won't get annoyed because you have something better to do. You will just be present and joyful in that time. And you know what? When you relate to God, you will not have any barrier no sin to tempt you, no idol to distract you, no suffering to endure. The presence of God will be fully with you. No more faith, only sight, because you will see God face to face. 
And your hope and trust in God will be tangible and visible every day. And so your heart will be content. Friends, this is why the resurrection body is so important and why our future in heaven will be an experience of being the most human you've ever been because as this cursed body we're living in is not the body that will inherit heaven with the Lord. You see, we need to be recreated to live as God intends us to live. And I'll leave you again with this statement from Graham Goldsworthy. We talked about this two weeks ago, but I want to bring it back to your attention. What God has destined for us is to be God's people in God's place, living under God's rule in God's way, in God's holy and loving presence. That's the most human you could ever be. Let's pray. Lord, to think about what it's like to be in heaven, what our bodies will be like, is, is, is fun and interesting, but at the same time, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that these new bodies we will have will be for your glory and for our good because you are redeeming your creation. And so what was lost when humanity fell in sin is conquered and restored and recreated and redeemed for an eternal heaven in your presence, God. And so we thank you and we look forward with hope to the resurrection bodies we will have. In Jesus' name, amen.